Escape Pod 37 January 19th, 2006 Today's story, Crap Hound, by Cory Doctorow Hello, I'm Steve Ely, and welcome to Escape Pod. Something different today for our intro. I give you a poem, one of the very few that I'll ever admit to writing. Poems of intensity, framed art painted over with despair that smothers and soaks like black rain in July, or leering maniacally in a psychedelic pastiche of madness and misstructure. Poems that walk a dark forest path where the dirt creeps beneath your feet and the branches are snakes. Storm clouds of obsession that linger humid in the air and leave a foul aftertaste in the mouth that speaks them. These poems, these fragments, these twisted shards of a fragile mind's battle with hope, these growling, gleaming, violent, hungry poems incessantly bore the living shit out of me. I wrote that when I was 18. My girlfriend at the time suggested that it should be titled The Literary Magazine Editor's Lament. It is, of course, a fantasy. Nobody actually writes poems like that. Today's story is certainly not intense in that manner. In fact, it's very nearly the opposite. It brings science fiction into a setting so low-key, so human, that it comes out the other side and becomes powerful again. We're very proud to present Crap Hound by Cory Doctorow. If they made a Kevin Bacon game for internet culture, it would be the six degrees of Cory Doctorow. His science fiction novels, beginning with Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, are the first to have been published by a major publisher and released on the internet on a Creative Commons license simultaneously. His nonfiction has appeared everywhere from Wired to the New York Times, not to mention The Complete Idiot's Guide to Writing Science Fiction. He's one of the co-editors of Boing Boing, a geek culture blog that's the most linked-to blog on the internet, and he's just finished a four-year stint as Director of European Affairs for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And, of course, he's got his own podcast, where he reads his own work, both finished and in progress. It's funny, until I read his bio again, I thought I was a busy guy. The story is read for us this week by Jesse Thorne, comedian and host of the acclaimed radio show and podcast, The Sound of Young America. Jesse, a.k.a. America's Radio Sweetheart, interviews comedians, writers, founders of National Talk Like a Pirate Day, arr, and other people who aren't boring. As the press has said, if you're not listening to the sound of Young America, then it's the best radio show you're not listening to. So, without further ado, we've got 40 minutes, do I hear 40 minutes, going once, going twice, it's story time! Crap Hound by Cory Doctorow Crap Hound had wicked yard sale karma for a rotten, filthy alien bastard. He was too good at panning out the single grain of gold in a raging river of uselessness for me not to like him, respect him, anyway. But then he found the cowboy trunk. It was two months' rent to me, and nothing but some squirrely alien kitsch fetish to crap hound. So I did the unthinkable. I violated the code. I got into a bidding war with a buddy. Never let them tell you that women poison friendships. In my experience, wounds from women fights heal quickly. Fights over garbage leave nothing behind but scorched earth. 
Craphound spotted the sign. His karma, plus the goggles in his exoskeleton, gave him the advantage when we were doing 80 kilometers an hour on some stretch of back highway in cottage country. He was riding shotgun while I drove, and we had the radio on to the CBC Summer Saturday programming. Eight weekends with eight hours of old radio dramas. The Shadow, Quiet Please, Tom Mix, The Crypt Keeper with Bella Lugosi. It was hour three, and Bogey was phoning in his performance on a radio adaptation of The African Queen. I had the windows of the old truck rolled down so that I could smoke without fouling Craphound's breather. My arm was hanging out of the window, and the radio was booming, and Craphound said, Turn around! Turn around! Now! Jerry, now! Turn around! When Craphound gets that excited, it's a sign that he's spotted a rich vein. I checked the side mirror quickly, pounded the brakes, and spun around. The transmission creaked, the wheels squealed, and then we were creeping along the way we'd come. There, Craphound said, gesturing with his long, skinny arm. I saw it. A wooden A-frame real estate sign, a piece of hand-lettered cardboard stuck over top of the realtor's name. East Muskoka Volunteer Fire Department, Ladies' Auxiliary Rummage Sale, Saturday, 25 June. Hooey, I hollered and spun the truck onto the dirt road. I gunned the engine as we cruised along the tree-lined road, trusting Craphound to spot any deer, signs, or hikers in time to avert disaster. The sky was a perfect blue, and the smells of summer were all around us. I snapped off the radio and listened to the wind rushing through the truck. Ontario is beautiful in the summer. There! Craphound shouted. I hit the turnoff and downshifted, and then we were back on a paved road. Soon, we were rolling into a country fire station, an ugly brick barn. The hall was lined with long folding tables stacked high, the mother load. Craphound beat me out of the door, as usual. His exoskeleton is programmable, so he can record little scripts for it, like move left arm to door handle, pop it, swing legs out to running board, jump to ground, close door, move forward. Meanwhile, I'm still making sure I've switched off the headlights and that I've got my wallet. Two blue-haired grannies had a card table set up out front of the hall with a big tin pitcher of lemonade and three boxes of Tim Horton assorted donuts. That stopped us both, since we share the superstition that you always buy food from old ladies and little kids as a sacrifice to the crap gods. One of the old ladies poured out the lemonade while the other smiled and greeted us. Welcome, welcome. My, you've come a long way for us. Just up from Toronto, ma'am, I said. It's an old joke, but uh, it's also part of the ritual, and it's got to be done. I meant your friend, sir, this gentleman. Craphound smiled without bearing his gums and sipped his lemonade. Of course I came, dear lady. I wouldn't miss it for the worlds. His accent is pretty good, but when it comes to stock phrases like this, he's got so much polish you'd think he was reading the news. The biddy blushed and giggled, and I felt faintly sick. I walked off to the tables, trying not to hurry. I chose my first spot about halfway down where things wouldn't be quite so picked over. I grabbed an empty box from underneath and started putting stuff into it. Four matched highball glasses with gold cross bowling pins and a line of black around the rim. An Expo 67 wall hanging that wasn't even a little faded. A shoebox full of late 60s OPG hockey cards. A worn, wooden-handled steel cleaver that you could butcher a steer with. I picked up my box and moved on. A deck of playing cards, copyrighted 57, with the logo for the Royal Canadian Dairy, Bala Ontario, printed on the backs. A fireman's cap with a brass badge so tarnished I couldn't read it. A three-story wedding cake trophy for the 1974 Eastern Region Curling Championships. 
The cash register in my mind was ringing, ringing, ringing. God bless the East Muskoka Volunteer Fire Department Ladies Auxiliary. I'd mind that table long enough. I moved to the other end of the hall. Time was I'd start at the beginning and turn over each item, build one pile of maybes and another pile of definites, try to strategize. In time, I came to rely on instinct and on the fates to whom I make my obeisances at every opportunity. Let's hear it for the fates. A genuine collapsible top hat, a white-tipped evening cane, a hand-carved cherrywood walking stick, a beautiful black lace parasol, a wrought iron lightning rod with a rooster on top, all of it in an elephant leg umbrella stand. I filled the box, folded it over, and started on another. I collided with Craphound. He grinned his natural grin, the one that showed row on row of wet, slimy gums tipped with writhing, poisonous suckers. Gold, gold, he said, and moved along. I turned my head after him just as he bent over the cowboy trunk. I sucked air between my teeth. It was magnificent. A leather-bound miniature steamer trunk. The leather worked with lariats, stetson hats, war bonnets, and six-guns. I moved toward him, and he popped the latch. I caught my breath. On top, there was a kid's cowboy costume. Miniature leather chaps, a tiny stetson, a pair of scuffed white leather cowboy boots with long-worn spurs affixed to the heels. Craphound moved it reverently to the table and continued to pull more magic from the trunk steps. A stack of cardboard-bound Hopalong Cassidy 78s, a pair of tin six-guns with a gun belt and holsters, a silver star that said Sheriff, a bundle of Roy Rogers comics tied with twine in mint condition, and a leather satchel filled with plastic cowboys and Indians enough to reenact the Alamo. Oh, my God, I breathed as he spread the loot out on the table. What are these, Jetty? Craphound asked, holding up the 78s. Old records, like LPs, but you need a special record player to listen to them. I took one out of its sleeve. It gleamed, scratch-free, in the overhead fluorescence. I got a 78 player here, said a member of the East Muskoka Volunteer Fire Department Ladies Auxiliary. She was short enough to look Craphound in the eye, hair under five feet, and had a skinny, raw-boned look to her. That's my Billy's things. Billy the Kid, we called him. He was dotty for cowboys when he was a boy. Couldn't get him to take off that fool outfit, nearly got him thrown out of school. He's a lawyer now in Toronto, got a fancy office on Bay Street. I called him to ask if he minded my putting his cowboy things in the sale, and you know what? He didn't even know what I was talking about. Doesn't that beat everything? He was dotty for cowboys when he was a boy. It's another of my rituals to smile and nod and be as polite as possible to the erstwhile owners of the crap that I'm trying to buy. So I smiled and nodded and examined the 78 player she had produced. In Lariat's script on the top, it said, Official Bob Willis Little Record Player, and had a crude watercolor of Bob Willis and his Texas Playboys grinning on the front. It was the kind of record player that folded up like a suitcase when you weren't using it. I'd had one as a kid with Yogi Bear silkscreened on the front. Billy's mom plugged the yellowed cord into a wall jack and took the 78 from me, touching the stylus to the record. A tinny ukulele played, accompanied by horse clops, and then a narrator with a deep whiskey voice said, Howdy, partners. I was just sitting down by the old campfire. Why don't you stay and have some beans, and I'll tell you all the story about how Hopalong Cassidy beat the Duke gang when they came to rob the Santa Fe. In my head, I was already breaking down the cowboy trunk and its contents, thinking about the minimum bid I'd place on each item at Sotheby's. Sold individually, I figured I could get over two grand for the contents. 
Then I thought about putting ads in some of the Japanese collector's magazines just for a lark before I sent the lot to the auction house. You never can tell. A buddy I knew had sold a complete package set of Welcome Back Cotter action figures for nearly eight grand that way. Maybe I could buy a new truck. This is wonderful, Craphound said, interrupting my reverie. How much would you like for the collection? I felt a knife in my guts. Craphound had found the cowboy trunk, so that meant it was his. But he usually let me take the stuff with street value. He was interested in everything, so it hardly mattered if I picked up a few scraps with which to eke out a living. Billy's mom looked over the stuff. I was hoping to get $20 for the lot, but if that's too much, I'm willing to come down. I'll give you 30 my mouth said, without intervention from my brain. They both turned and stared at me. Craphound was unreadable behind his goggles. Billy's mom broke the silence. Oh, my, $30 for this old mess? I will pay 50 Craphound said. 75 I said. Oh, my, Billy's mom said. 500 Craphound said. I opened my mouth and shut it. Craphound had built his stake on Earth by selling a complicated biochemical process for non-chlorophyll photosynthesis to a Saudi banker. I, I wouldn't ever beat him in a bidding war. A thousand dollars, my mouth said. Ten thousand, Craphound said, and extruded a roll of hundreds from somewhere in his exoskeleton. My lord, Billy's mom said. Ten thousand dollars? The other pickers, the firemen, the... Blue-haired ladies all looked up at that and stared at us, their mouths open. "'It is for a good cause,' Craphound said. Ten thousand dollars,' Billy's mom said again. Craphound's digits ruffled through the roll as fast as a croupier's counter, separated off a large chunk of the brown bills and handed them to Billy's mom. One of the firemen, a middle-aged paunchy man with a comb-over, appeared at Billy's mom's shoulder. "'What's going on, Eva?' he said. This gentleman is going to pay $10,000 for Billy's old cowboy things, Tom. The fireman took the money from Billy's mom and stared at it. He held up the top note under the light and turned it this way and that, watching the holographic stamp change from green to gold, then green again. He looked at the serial number, then the serial number on the next bill. He licked his forefinger and started counting off the bills in piles of ten. Once he had ten piles, he counted them again. That's $10,000, all right. Oh, thank you very much, mister. Can, can I give you a hand getting this to your car? Craphound, meanwhile, had repacked the trunk and balanced the 78 player on top of it. He looked at me, then at the fireman. I wonder if I could impose on you to take me to the nearest bus station. I think I'm going to be making my own way home. The fireman and Billy's mom both stared at me, my cheeks flushed. Oh, come on, I said. I'll drive you home. I think I prefer the bus, Craphound said. It's no trouble at all. Give you a lift, friend, the fireman said. I called it quits for the day and drove home alone with the truck only half filled. I pulled it into the coach house and threw a tarp over the load and went inside and cracked a beer and sat on the sofa watching a nature show on a desert reclamation project in Arizona where the state legislature had traded a derelict mega mall and a custom-built habitat to an alien for a local area weather control machine. The following Thursday, I went to the little crap auction house on King Street. I put my fines from the weekend in the sale, lower minimum bid, and they took a smaller commission than Sotheby's, fine for moving the small stuff. Craphound was there, of course. I knew he'd be. 
It was where we met when he bid on a case of Lincoln Logs I'd found at a fire sale. I'd known him for a kindred spirit when he bought them, and we talked afterwards at his place, a sprawling two-story warehouse amid a cluster of auto-wrecking yards where the junkyard dogs barked, barked, barked. Inside was paradise. His taste ran to shrines, a collection of 50s bar kitsch that was a shrine to liquor, a circular waterbed on a raised podium that was nearly buried under 70s bachelor paddenalia, a kitchen that was nearly unusable so packed it was with old barn board furniture and rural memorabilia, a leather-appointed library straight out of a Victorian gentleman's club, a solarium dressed in wicker and bamboo and tiki idols. It was a hell of a place. Craphound had known all about the Goodwills and the Sally Anns and the auction houses and the kitsch boutiques on Queen Street, but he still hadn't figured out where it all came from. Yard sales, rummage sales, garage sales, I said reclining in a vibrating Naugahyde easy chair, drinking a glass of his pricey single malt that he'd bought for the beautiful bottle it came in. But where are these? Who is allowed to make them? Craphound hunched opposite me, his exoskeleton locked into a coiled, semi-seated position. Who? Well, anyone. You just one day decide that you need to clean out the basement, you put an ad in the star, tape up a few signs, and voila, yard sale. Sometimes a school or a church will get donations of old junk and sell it all at one time as a fundraiser. And where do you locate these? he asked, bobbing up and down, slightly with excitement. Well, there are the amateurs who just read the ads in the weekend papers or just pick a neighborhood and wander around, but that's no way to go about it. What I do is I get in a truck and I sniff the air, catch the scent of crap, and vroom, I'm off like a bloodhound on a trail. You learn things over time. Uh, Like, stay away from yuppie yard sales. They never have anything worth buying. Just the same crap you can buy in any mall. Do you think I might accompany you someday? Hell, sure. Next Saturday, we'll head over to Cabbage Town. Those old coach houses, you'd be amazed what people get rid of. It's practically criminal. I would like to go with you on next Saturday very much, Mr. Jerry Abington. He used to talk like that, without commas or question marks. Later he got better, but then it was just all one big sentence. Call me Jerry. It's a date, then. Tell you what, though. There's a code you gotta learn before we go out. The Crap Hound's Code. What is a Crap Hound? You're looking at one. You're one, too, unless I miss my guess. You'll get to know some of the local Crap Hounds you hang around with me long enough. They're the competition, but they're also your buddies, and there's certain rules we have. And then I explained to him all about how you never bid against a Crap Hound at a yard sale... How you get to know the other fellas' tastes, and when you see something they might like, you haul it out for them, and they'll do the same for you, and how you never buy something that another crap hound might be looking for if all you're buying it for is to sell it back to him. Just good form and common sense, really, but you'd be surprised how many amateurs fail to make the jump to pro because they can't grasp it. There was a bunch of other stuff at the auction, other crap hounds' weekend treasures, This was high season when the sun comes out and people start to clean out the cottage, the basement, the garage. There were some collectors in the crowd and a whole whack of antique and junk dealers and a few pickers and me and Crap Hound. I watched the bidding listlessly, waiting for my things to come up and sneaking out for smokes between lots. Crap Hound never once looked at me or acknowledged my presence and I became perversely obsessed with catching his eye so I coughed and shifted and walked past him several times until the auctioneer glared at me and one of the attendants asked if I needed a throat lozenge. My lot came up. The bowling glasses went for five bucks to one of the Queen Street junk dealers. 
The Elephant Foot fetched $350 after a spirited bidding war between an antique dealer and a collector. The collector won. The dealer took the top half for $100. The rest of it came up and sold or didn't, and at the end of the lot I'd made over $800, which was rent for the month, plus beer for the weekend, plus gas for the truck. Craphound bid on and bought more cowboy things. A box of Super 8 cowboy movies, the boxes moldy, the stock itself running to slime. A Navajo blanket. A plastic donkey that dispensed cigarettes out of its ass. A big neon armadillo sign. One of the other nice things about the place over Sotheby's, there was none of this waiting 30 days to get a check. I queued up with the other pickers after the bidding was through, collected a wad of bills, and headed for my truck. I spotted Crap Hound loading his haul into a minivan with handicapped plates. It looked like some kind of fungus was growing over the hood and the side panels. On closer inspection, I saw that the body had been covered in closely glued Lego. Craphound popped the hatchback and threw his gear in, then opened the driver's side door, and I saw that his van had been fitted out for a legless driver with a brake and accelerator levers. A paraplegic I knew drove one just like it. Craphound's exoskeleton levered him into the seat, and I watched the eerily precise way it executed the macro that started the car, pulled the shoulder belt, put it into drive, and switched on the stereo. I heard tape hiss, then as loud as a b-boy cruising Yonge Street, an old-timey cowboy voice. Howdy, partners. Saddle up. We're riding. Then the van backed up and sped out of the lot. I'd get into the truck and drove home. Truth be told, I missed the little bastard. Some people said that we should have run Crap Hound and his kin off the planet, out of the solar system. They said that it wasn't fair for the aliens to keep us in the dark about their technologies. They say that we should have captured a ship and reverse-engineered it, built our own, and kicked ass. Some people. First of all, nobody with human DNA could survive a trip in one of those ships. They're part of Craphound's people's bodies, as I understand it. We just don't have the right parts. Second of all, they were sharing their tech with us. They just weren't giving it away. Fair trades every time. It's not as if space was off-limits to us. We can any one of us visit their home world just as soon as we figure out how, only they wouldn't hold our hands along the way. I spent the week haunting the secret boutique, a.k.a. the Goodwill As Is Center on Jarvis. It's all there is to do between yard sales, and sometimes it makes for good finds. Part of my theory of yard sale karma holds that if I miss one day at the thrift shops, that'll be the day they put out the big score. So I hit all the stores diligently and came up with crapola. I defended the fates I knew, and I wouldn't make another score until I placated them. It was lonely work, still and all, and I missed Craphound's good eye and obsessive delight. I was at the cash register with a few items at the Goodwill when a guy in a suit behind me tapped me on the shoulder. Sorry to bother you, he said. His suit looked expensive, as did his manicure and his haircut and his wire-rimmed glasses. I was just wondering where you found that. He gestured at a rhinestone-studded ukulele with a cowboy hat wood-burned into the body. I had picked it up with a guilty little thrill, thinking the craphound might buy it at the next auction. Second floor in the toy section. There wasn't anything else like it, was there? Afraid not, I said, and the cashier picked it up and started wrapping it in a newspaper. Ah, he said, and he looked like a little kid who'd just been told that he couldn't have a puppy. I don't suppose you'd want to sell it, would you? I held up a hand and waited while the cashier bagged it with the rest of my stuff. A few old cloth-bound novels I thought I could sell at a used bookstore and a grease belt buckle with Olivia Newton-John on it. 
I let him out the door by the elbow of his expensive suit. How much? I paid a dollar. Ten bucks? I nearly said sold, but I caught myself. Twenty. Twenty dollars? That's what they charge at a boutique on Queen Street. He took out a slim leather wallet and produced a twenty. I handed him the uke. His face lit up like a light bulb. It's not that my adulthood is particularly unhappy. Likewise, it's not that my childhood was particularly happy. There are memories I have, though, that are like a cool drink of water. My grandfather's place near Milton, an old Victorian farmhouse where the cat drank out of a milk glass bowl, and where we sat around a rough pine table as big as my whole apartment, and where my playroom was the drafty barn with hay-filled lofts bulging with farm junk and Tarzan ropes. There was Grandpa's friend Theodore, and we spent every evening at his wrecking yard, he and Grandpa talking and smoking while I scampered in the twilight, scaling mountains of auto junk. The glove boxes yielded treasures. Crumpled photos of college boys mugging in front of signs, road maps of faraway places. I found a guidebook from the 1964 New York World's Fair once, and a lipstick like a chrome bullet, and a pair of white leather ladies' gloves. Theodore dealt in scrap, too, and once he had half of a carny carousel, a few horses and part of the canopy paint flaking and sharp torn edges protruding. Next to it, a Korean War tank, minus its turret and treads, and inside the tank were peeling old pinup girls and a rotation schedule and a crude Kilroy. The control room in the middle of the carousel had a stack of paperback sci-fi novels, ace doubles that had two books bound back to back, and when you finished the first, you turned it over and read the other. Theodore let me keep them, and there was a pawn ticket in one, from Macon, Georgia, for a transistor radio. My parents started leaving me alone when I was 14, and I couldn't keep from sneaking into their room and snooping. Mom's jewelry box had books of matches from their honeymoon in Acapulco, printed with bad palm trees. My dad kept an old photo in his sock drawer of himself on Muscle Beach, shirtless, flexing his biceps. My grandmother saved every scrap of my mother's life in her basement, in dusty army trunks. I entertained myself by pulling it out and taking it in. Her mouse ears from the big family train trip to Disneyland in 57, and her records, and the glittery pasteboard sign from her sweet 16. There were well-chewed stuffed animals and school exercise books in which she'd practice variations on her signature for page after page. It all told a story. The penciled Kilroy in the tank made me see one of those Canadian soldiers in Korea, unshaven and crew-cut like an extra on MASH, sitting for bored hour after hour staring at the pin-up girls, fiddling with a crossword, finally laying it down and sketching his Kilroy quickly before anyone saw. The photo of my dad posing sent me whirling through time to Toronto's Muscle Beach in the East End and hearing the tinny AM radios playing weird psychedelic rock while teenagers lounged on their Mustangs and the girls sunbathed in bikinis that made their tits into torpedoes. It all made poems, the old pulp novels and the pawn ticket when I spread them out in front of the TV and arranged them just so. They made up a poem that took my breath away. After the cowboy trunk episode, I didn't run into Craphound again until the annual Rotary Club charity rummage sale at the Upper Canada Brewing Company. He was wearing the cowboy hat, six guns, and the silver star from the cowboy trunk. It should have looked ridiculous, but the net effect was naive and somehow charming, like he was a little boy whose hair you wanted to muss. I found a box of nice old melamine dishes in various shades of green, 
four square plates, bowls, salad plates, and a serving tray. I threw them in the duffel bag I'd brought and kept browsing, ignoring Craphound as he charmed a salty old Rotarian while fondling a box of leather-bound books. I browsed a stack of old Ministry of Labor licenses. Barber, chiropodist, bartender, watchmaker. They all had pretty seals and were framed in stark green institutional metal. They all had different names, but all from one family, and I made up a little story to entertain myself about the proud mother saving her son's accreditations and framing, hanging them in the spare room with their diplomas. Oh, George Jr.'s just opened his own barber shop, and little Jimmy's still fixing watches. I bought them. In a box of crappy plastic little ponies and Barbies and Care Bears, I found a leather Indian headdress, a wooden bow and arrow set, and a fringed buckskin vest. Craphound was still buttering up the leather books owner. I bought them quick for five bucks. Those are beautiful, a voice said at my elbow. I turned around and smiled at the snappy dresser who bought the uke at the secret boutique. He'd gone casual for the weekend in an expensive L.L. Bean button-down way. Aren't they, though? You sell them on Queen Street? Your fines, I mean? Sometimes, sometimes at auction. How's the uke? Oh, I got it all tuned up, he said and he smiled the same smile he'd given me when he'd taken hold of it at Goodwill. I can play Don't Fence Me In on it. He looked at his feet. Silly, huh? Not at all. You're into cowboy things, huh? As I said it, I was overcome with the knowledge that this was Billy the Kid, the original owner of the cowboy trunk. I don't know why I felt that way, but I did, with utter certainty. Just trying to relive a piece of my childhood, I guess. I'm Scott, he said extending his hand. Scott, I thought wildly. Maybe it's his middle name? I'm Jerry. The Upper Canada Brewery Sale has many things going for it, including a beer garden where you can sample their wares and get a good barbecue burger. We gently gravitated to it, looking over the tables as we went. You're a pro, right? He asked after we had plastic cups of beer. You could say that. I'm an amateur, a rank amateur. Any words of wisdom? I laughed and drank some beer, lit a cigarette. There's no secret to it, I think, just diligence. You gotta go out every chance you get or you'll miss the big score. He chuckled. I hear that. Sometimes I'll be sitting in my office and I just know they're putting out a piece of pure gold at the Goodwill and then somebody else is gonna get to it before my lunch. I get so wound up, I'm no good until I go down there and hunt for it. I guess I'm hooked, huh? Cheaper than some other kinds of addictions. I guess so. About that Indian stuff. What do you figure you'd get for it at the Queen Street Boutique? I looked him in the eye. He may have been something high-powered and cool and collected in his natural environment, but just then he was as eager and nervous as a kitchen table poker player at a high-stakes game. Maybe fifty bucks, I said. Fifty, huh? he asked. About that, I said. Once it's sold, he said. Well, there is that, I said. Might take a month, might take a year, he said. Might take a day, I said. It might, it might. He finished his beer. I don't suppose you'd take 40. I'd paid five for it, not ten minutes before. It looked like it would fit Craphound, who, after all, was wearing Scott slash Billy's own childhood treasures as we spoke. You don't make a living by feeling guilty over 800% markups. Still, I'd angered the fates and needed to redeem myself. Make it five, I said. He started to say something, then closed his mouth and gave me a look of thanks. He took a five out of his wallet and handed it to me. I pulled the vest and bow and headdress out of my duffel. 
He walked back to a shiny black Jeep with the gold detail work parked next to Craphound's van. Craphound was building onto the Lego body, and the hood had a miniature Lego town attached to it. Craphound looked around as he passed and leaned forward with undisguised interest at the booty. I grimaced and finished my beer. I met Scott slash Billy three times more at the secret boutique that week. He was a lawyer who specialized in alien technology patents. He had a practice on Bay Street with two partners, and despite his youth, he was the senior man. I didn't let on that I knew about Billy the Kid and his mother in the East Muskoka Volunteer Fire Department Ladies Auxiliary, but I felt a bond with him, as though we shared an unspoken secret. I pulled any cowboy finds for him, and he developed a pretty good eye for what I was after and returned the favor. The fates were with me again, and no two ways about it. I took home a ratty old oriental rug that on closer inspection was a 19th century hand-knotted Persian, an upholstered Turkish footstool, a collection of hand-painted silk Hawaiiana pillows, and a carved meerschaum pipe. Scott slash Billy bought the last for me, and it cost me $2. I knew a collector who would pay 30 in an eye blink, and from then on, as far as I was concerned, Scott slash Billy was a fellow crap hound. You going to the auction tomorrow night? I asked him at the checkout line. Wouldn't miss it, he said. He'd barely been able to contain his excitement when I told him about the big Thursday night auctions and the bargains to be had there. He sure had the bug. Want to get together for dinner beforehand? The Rotterdam's got a good patio. He did, and we did. And I had a glass of frambois that packed a hell of a kick and tasted like a fizzy raspberry lemonade and doorstopper fries and a club sandwich. I had my nose in my glass when he kicked my ankle under the table. Look at that. It was Craphound in his van cruising for a parking spot. The Lego village had been joined by a whole postmodern spaceport on the roof with red and blue castle, a football-sized flying saucer, and a clown's head with blinking eyes. I went back to my drink and tried to get my appetite back. Was that an XT driving? Yeah, he used to be a friend of mine. He's a picker? Uh-huh. I turned back to my fries and tried to kill the subject. Do you know how he made his steak? Uh, the chlorophyll thing in Saudi Arabia. Sweet, he said. Very sweet. I've got a client who's got some secondary patents from that one. What's he go after? Ah, oh, pretty much everything, I said, resigning myself to discussing the topic after all. Lately, the same as you, cowboys and Indians. He laughed and smacked his knee. Well, what do you know? What could he possibly want with this stuff? But what do they want with any of it? He got started one day when we were cruising the Muskokas, I said carefully, watching his face. Found a trunk of old cowboy things at a rummage sale. East Muskoka Volunteer Fire Department Ladies Auxiliary. I waited for him to shout or startle. He didn't. Yeah, good find, I guess. Wish I'd made it. I didn't know what to say to that, so I took a bite of my sandwich. Scott continued. I think I know what they get out of it. There's nothing we have here that they couldn't make for themselves. I mean, if they picked up and left today, we'd just be making sense of everything they gave us in a hundred years. You know, I just closed a deal for a biochemical computer that's no shit 10,000 times faster than anything we've built out of silicon. You know what the XT took in trade? Title to a defunct fairground outside of Calgary. They shut it down 10 years ago because the midway was too unsafe to ride. Doesn't that beat all? This thing is worth a billion dollars right out of the gate. I mean, within 24 hours of the deal closing, the seller can turn it into the GDP of Bolivia for a crummy real estate dog that you couldn't get five grand for. It always shocked me when Billy slash Scott talked about his job. It was easy to forget that he was a high-powered lawyer when we were jawing and fooling around like old crap hounds. I wonder if maybe he wasn't Billy the Kid. I couldn't think of any reason for him to be playing it all so close to his chest.
What the hell is some XT going to do with a fairground? Craphound got a free coke from Lisa at the check-in when he made his appearance. He bid high but shrewdly and never pulled $10,000 stunts. The bidders were wandering the floor, previewing that week's stock and making notes to themselves. I rooted through a box lot full of old tins and found one with a buckaroo at the Calgary Stampede riding a bucking bronc. I picked it up and stood to inspect it. Craphound was behind me. Nice piece, huh? I said to him. I like it very much, Craphound said, and I felt my cheeks flush. You're going to have some competition tonight, I think, I said and nodded at Scott slash Billy. I think he's Billy, the one whose mother sold us uh, you, the cowboy trunk. Really? Craphound said, and it felt like we were partners again, scoping out the competition. Suddenly I felt a knife of shame, like I was betraying Scott slash Billy somehow. I took a step back. Jerry, I'm very sorry that we argued. I sighed out of breath that I hadn't known I was holding in. Me too. They're starting the bidding, may I sit with you? And so the three of us sat together and Craphound shook Scott slash Billy's hand and the auctioneer started into his harangue. It was a night for unusual occurrences. I bid on a piece, something I told myself I'd never do. It was a set of four-matched little orphan Annie Ovaltine glasses like Grandma's had been. And seeing them in the auctioneer's hand took me right back to her kitchen and endless afternoons passed with my coloring books and weird old lady hard candies and Liberace albums playing in the living room. Ten, I said. I got ten, ten, I got ten. We'll say twenty, 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 twenty for the four. Craphound waved his bidding card and I jumped as if I'd been stung. I got twenty from the space cowboy. I got twenty, sir. Will you say thirty? I waved my card. That's thirty to you, sir. Forty, Craphound said. Fifty, I said, before the auctioneer could point back at me. An old pro, he settled back and let us do the work. One hundred, Craphound said. One fifty, I said. The room was perfectly silent, and I thought about my overextended MasterCard and wondered if Scott slash Billy would give me a loan. Two hundred, Craphound said. Fine, I thought. Pay two hundred for those. I can get those on Queen Street for thirty bucks. The auctioneer turned to me. The bidding stands at two. Will you say two ten, sir? I shook my head. The auctioneer paused a long moment, letting me sweat over the decision to bow out. I have two. Do I have any other bids from the floor? Any other bids? Sold $200 to number 57. An attendant brought Craphound the glasses. He took them and tucked them under his seat. I was fuming when we left. Craphound was at my elbow. I wanted to punch him. I'd never punched anyone in my life, but I wanted to punch him. We entered the cool night air, and I sucked in several lungfuls before lighting a cigarette. Jerry, Craphound said. I stopped, but didn't look at him. I watched the taxis pull in and out of the garage next door instead. Jerry, my friend, Craphound said. What? I said, loud enough to startle myself. Scott beside me jerked as well. We're going. I wanted to say goodbye and to give you some things I won't be taking with me. What? I said again, Scott just a beat behind me. My people, we're going. It has been decided we've gotten what we came for. Without another word, he set off towards his van. We followed along behind, shell-shocked. Craphound's exoskeleton executed another macro and slid the panel door aside, revealing the cowboy trunk. I wanted to give you this. I will keep the glasses. I don't understand, I said. You're all leaving? Scott asked with a note of urgency. It has been decided. We'll go over the next 24 hours. But why, Scott said, sounding almost petulant. 
It's not something that I can easily explain. As you must know, the things we gave you were trinkets to us, almost worthless. We traded them for something that was almost worthless to you. A fair trade, you'll agree. But it's time to move on. Craphound handed me the cowboy trunk. Holding it, I smelled the lubricant from his exoskeleton and the smell of the attic it had been mummified in before making its way into his hands. I felt like I almost understood. This is for me, I said slowly, and Craphound nodded encouragingly. This is for me, and you're keeping the glasses, and I'll look at this and feel. You understand, Craphound said, looking somehow relieved. And I did. I understood that an alien wearing a cowboy hat and six guns and giving them away was a poem and a story, and a thirty-ish bachelor trying to spend half a month's rent on four glasses so that he could remember his grandma's kitchen was a story and a poem, and that the disused fairground outside Calgary was a story and a poem too. Your crap hounds, I said, all of you. Crap hound smiled so I could see his gums, and I put down the cowboy trunk clap my hands. Scott recovered from his shock by spending the night at his office, crunching numbers, talking on the phone, and generally getting while the getting was good. He had an edge. No one else knew that they were going. He went pro later that week, opened a shishi boutique on Queen Street, and hired me on as chief picker and factum factotum. Scott was not Billy the Kid, just another Bay Street shyster with a cowboy Jones. From the way they come down and spend, there must be a million of them. Our draw in the window is a beautiful mannequin I found straight out of the 50s, a little boy we call the Beaver. He dresses in chaps and a sheriff's badge and six guns and a miniature Stetson and cowboy boots with worn spurs and rests one foot on a beautiful miniature steamer trunk whose leather is worked with cowboy motifs. He's not for sale at any price. And that was our story. I'd like to quote from Corey's bio here, because it's relevant to what we do at Escape Pod. He says, I believe that we live in an era where anything that can be expressed as bits will be. I believe that bits exist to be copied. Therefore, I believe that any business model that depends on your bits not being copied is just dumb. That pretty much sums up why Escape Pod delivers with a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I name the license here every week because I think it matters. It's not required, I just like to remind people that they have the freedom. In fact, I urge them to share these files. Since then, I've heard some other podcasters do the same tongue twister on their shows, and that makes me happy. By the way, the text of the story you just heard, Crap Hound, is also available on a CC license, so you can read it for free. But it's a no-derivatives license, so you can't, say, podcast it for free. We made a contract with Corey and paid him, just as we pay all of our authors. And speaking of, here's the big news. I was going to hold off on this until the next Metacast, but I got impatient. Thanks to your very generous donations, as of this week, Escape Pod is raising its payment rates for stories. We're now paying $50 for stories from 2,000 words and up, and $15 for flash fiction. This is something we've been wanting to do for a while. And we're finally at the point where we know we can sustain it from one week to the next. Remember, we buy non-exclusive audio rights on stories that have been sold before or haven't. You can see our guidelines on our site, escapepod.org. So if you've got a story, 
please send it to us. If you don't, tell a friend. And if you don't have friends, there's probably a story in that. I want to thank all of you for helping Escape Pod grow. Our ultimate goal is to be able to pay pro rates, but as early steps go, this is a very significant one. Remember, all of the money we pay our authors comes from you, our listeners. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, and you have the means to, we hope you'll consider clicking the PayPal link on our site. If you don't, that's cool too. We're still glad you're listening. Hi, this is Charles from Mostly News at MostlyNews.net. When I'm not reporting on the daily news, I can usually be found curled up with aliens, floating beds, or vampire junkies from the escape pod. Thanks, Charles. A few of you might remember several months ago when I said I wanted a short news podcast with a personal feel to it. Charles went and did it. Ergo, he rocks. You should positively check out his podcast at MostlyNews.net. This also makes him our featured listener this week. Huzzah! Let's see. Creative Commons, check. Donate to us, check. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, Japanese monster surf rock set to stun. That was our show for this week. We'll see you next time. And remember, if you're not part of the solution, it helps to redefine the problem. <laughs>